Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned that this podcast contains body language of the modern and early modern varieties, so plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice that you can make, but don't say we didn't warn you. And that was one of the episodes that we recorded in that marathon block. It was As You Like It, Midsummer oh, yeah. and Macbeth, all yeah. <laughs> over the course of like seven hours. Yeah, we had to do three in a day to get it yeah. done. Oh, man. Yeah. That was those- good times. I know, I know. But this was the first one, so we weren't quite so loopy. That's true, that's true. I want to say that I bet it would be hilarious to listen to all three of those back to back to back to hear us yeah. get punchier. We're your hosts, Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock, and together we are Whamlet. And this week it is As You Like It 201. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show and come back for more. So, this is how we do things are a little bit different for 201 level episodes. Tell us about it, Jess. Yeah, so we're operating on the assumption that you have a basic familiarity with the play, so we are not going to do a synopsis. If you're a newbie to As You Like It, or if you just need to refresh your memory, you can go all the way back to Season 1, Episode 4 of our podcast and listen to As You Like It 101. Oh, we were so young and innocent then. Any hoozle, for 201 level episodes, we want to go narrow and deep on a couple of topics relating to the play. Today, we are talking about critical history and poetry. And by that, I mean verse to prose. So to get things going, we are going to do our device of the week. So in the 101 episodes, we discuss definitions of rhetorical devices and we give examples. Um, And at the 201 level, we like to revisit a device that we've already done in a 101 episode and discuss the uses or possible characterizations of that particular device in performance. In our 101 episodes, we say over and over again that identifying the rhetoric helps us to understand a character or gives us a possible line reading. But what does that actually mean? So to answer that, we need to look at the specific context in which the device is used and by whom and think about the kind of device it is. So this week, we're revisiting Epinorthosis and our friend Touchstone because he's the king of Epinorthosis. And if you don't remember... Epinorthosis is a form of addition. It is addition by correction. So it's when you're it's when you correct yourself kind of mid-thought. Um, Bottom does this as well. Uh, and actually, the, I think the example we used for that was fair ladies, or we entreat you, or we, yeah, incre- yeah, yeah. we request you, or you know. So it's like adding on, trying to improve whatever you've already said. So Touchstone being a fool who is essentially a paid clown, so he's paid to be funny, is kind of always groping for, well, he's groping for Audrey, <laughs> but he's mentally groping for uh, the, the funniest, quippiest, wittiest way to say things, um, because that's his job, and so it's kind of ingrained in him. So I've chosen a couple of examples of touchstones, Ebonorthosis. The first one 
which you can probably find more and other characters do this too but i've picked out touchstone because it is so inherent in him um touchstone says uh, in act two scene four when they've arrived in the forest of arden rosalind says well this is the forest of arden and touchstone says i now am i in arden the more fool i when i was at home i was in a better place but travelers must be content so the more why fool did you just I, say rosalind's name so weird it's terrible sorry it just came out I'll, I'll never do it again I'm don't because it made me so angry oh i'm sorry okay um uh, okay so a little bit later in act two scene four touchstone gives us a little more of this addition by correction in the description of his first love and he says i remember when i was in love i broke my sword upon a stone and bid him take that for coming a knight to jane's smile and i remember the kissing of her batlet and the cow's dugs that her pretty chopped hands had milked and i remember the wooing of a peas cod instead of her from whom i took two cods and giving her them again said with weeping tears wear these for my sake we that are true lovers run into strange capers so he's piling on, he's adding on, you know, none of these additions, most kinds of addition in rhetoric are not necessary for the understanding of the listener, right? They're almost always necessary for the speaker in some way. Like, you know, some additions, you know, you, you're piling on because you're lying, you're trying to hide, or, you know, in the case of epinorthosis, you're piling on because you are correcting yourself. My favorite one, though is so jess i'm gonna need your help for this since you too have your arden would you please turn to page 317 uh it's act five scene one yep. and it is the, it is the scene in which uh touchstone has to frighten away or feels like he needs to frighten away william the country bumpkin who uh has a prior claim to audrey which is the the wench the goat herder that Touchstone wants to marry. And Touchstone says some very cruel things to William, but it's mostly because he can't get William to understand him. So. That's you? Mm-hmm. We'll just Mine makes finish. the same noise, and it's running, and I was like, my laundry can't be done yet. <laughs> okay, well, at least it won't be bothering us anymore because the cycle is over. Amazing. <laughs> Alrighty. Uh, moving on. Um... Okay, so I want to start with Touchstone says, give me your hand. And if you will just read William, that'd be great. So listen for all of the, and we're going to go to, um, therefore tremble and depart on the next page. So not okay. too far. Great. Um, yeah. So listen for all of the correction, addition by correction, the epinorthosis that Touchstone has. Give me your hand. Art thou learned? No, sir. Then learn this of me to have is to have for it is a figure in rhetoric that drink being poured out of a cup into a glass by filling the one doth empty the other for all your writers do consent that ipse is he now you are not ipse for i am he which he sir he sir that must marry this woman therefore you clown abandon which is in the vulgar leave the society which in the boorish is company of this female which in the common is woman which together is abandon the society of this female or clown thou perishest or to thy better understanding diest or to wit i kill thee make thee away translate thy life into death thy liberty into bondage i will deal in poison with thee or in bastinado or in steel 
I will bandy with thee in faction. I will o'errun thee with policy. I will kill thee a hundred and fifty ways. Therefore tremble and depart. I love that speech. Me too. <laughs> I love it so much. Um, yeah, so this one, he's just piling on, piling on, piling on. Um, and actually in this circumstance, he is correcting himself and adding on for William's benefit because William is stupid. Dear sweet William. Dear sweet William. Um, I, I think he's just one of the most endearing little shepherd characters. He's just so dumb. Mm. Um, but yeah, Touchstone really has has things to say to him. He really tries hard to make himself understood. So there you have it. Epinorthosis. You'll find it in characters that need to, that feel like they need to find the best word choice. Yeah. For things. Yeah. So good. Moving on. Whose turn is it now? Oh, it's me. That's yes. me. So it's you, boo boo. So what are we talking about? So as you may know, and as our listeners mm-hmm. may be learning, when I hang out with my boy, Willie Shakes, um, I spend a lot of time in the 18th and 19th centuries, um, thinking about mm-hmm. what was, what was happening in the, uh, the 1700s and the 1800s mostly the 1800s is is where I hang out a lot and so I this week have been working with the characters of Shakespeare's plays which is Hmm. um an 1817 work of character criticism uh by one William Hazlitt um and it's a it's a funny little text and I thought, well, let's let's look at some of the things that he has to say about As You Like It and talk about it. So I want to start with just a, a short paragraph of just what he says about the play as a whole. Um, so to quote, it is the most ideal of any of this author's plays. It is a pastoral drama in which the interest arises more out of the sentiments and characters than out of the actions or situations. It is not what is done but what is said that claims our attention. Nursed in solitude, under the shade of melancholy boughs, the imagination grows soft and delicate, and the wit runs riot in idleness, like a spoiled child that is never sent to school. Caprice and fancy reign and revel here, and stern necessity is banished to the court. The mild sentiments of humanity are strengthened with thought and leisure, The echo of the cares and noise of the world strikes upon the ear of those who have felt them knowingly, softened by time and distance. They hear the tumult and are still. The very air of the place seems to breathe a spirit of philosophical poetry, to stir the thoughts, to touch the heart with pity, as the drowsy forest rustles to the sighing gale. Never was there such beautiful moralizing, equally free from pedantry or petulance. So it's, I mean, this this sort of waxing poetic and waxing perhaps highly poetic is typical of 19th century criticism of Shakespeare. It's all, it's not all, but it's mostly hugely bardolatrous. And William Hazlitt is no exception. And I'd planned to just quote like the first couple lines of that, but then it just, it got more (laughs) and it's so it's so overwrought like this is a man William Hazlitt this is a man who who feels big feels about Shakespeare but I was struck particularly by his his characterization of the play as um it's not what is done but what is said that claims our attention 
uh, which I take uh-huh. to mean that this is this is a play that rests on the language more than the the characters. I agree. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think this is a super super languagey play. I it's not. I mean, I think Love's Labor's Lost is um, Shakespeare's love letter to language. Mm, um, totally. But this one is kind of a, a close second. He he just he plays in this play with the language. Yeah. William Shakespeare, not William Hazlitt. Wait, William Shakespeare played with language? What kind of so what weird. kind of heresy is this? <laughs> I was, I was, what what you, you heard what? it here first, folks. <laughs> she said as she sips her tea. <clears throat> yeah. Uh so let's move on to a couple of things that William Hazlitt has to say about some of the characters. Um, so on Jakes, he says, Jakes is the only purely contemplative character in Shakespeare. He thinks and does nothing. His whole occupation is to amuse his mind, and he is totally regardless of his body and his fortunes. So, like, he's not wrong. I mean, yeah, Jakes is a, he's a pretty cerebral dude. Yeah. But he, he does, he does stuff. He does stuff. He makes choices. Yeah. I mean, not he doesn't just sit lot. around thinking now, but he like he engages in some some beautiful playing with language. I mean, he he Jake's engages uh, in some beautiful verbal jumping, I suppose, dancing, playing. He does he does things with language, and he he gets involved with the characters. And, you know, from a, a distance, perhaps, but he does not think and do nothing. He perhaps yeah. thinks and does little. Yeah, I mean, but he intervenes in uh, Touchstone's sham marriage, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, he steps in and he's like, no, you're going to do it right. You're going to marry this girl. You got to do it right. You know, he does stuff. There's Mm -hmm. not a whole lot to do in the forest either. I kind of feel like that's not a very fair comparison. Like, who would Jake's be if he were back at court? Right, right. What would he be doing? Yeah. Uh, On Rosalind. William Hazlitt says, Rosalind's character is made up of sportive gaiety and natural tenderness. Her tongue runs the faster to conceal the pressure at her heart. Which I kind of think is adorable. Like, I think I think it might be a little reductive. I mean, I think Rosalind contains multitudes and is not just sportive gaiety and natural tenderness. You know, yeah. she's she's a deep, complex character. But I love the thought of her tongue running faster to conceal the pressures of her heart. Because huh. it's it's kind of accurate. I mean, I do not disagree with that. That's an interesting choice for Rosalind. Like she mm-hmm. babbles and says the things that she says at a prose pace rather than mm-hmm. a verse pace. Because she's a flutter. She's Twitter pated. Yeah, she's mm. all she's mm-hmm. all up in it. So then, moving on to Orlando, mm-hmm. William Hazlitt says literally nothing. What? Literally nothing. But literally nothing. But Orlando. <laughs> yeah, he mentions Orlando's name once, and it's like in the next sentence about Rosalind. Yeah, Aww. yeah. And I was, I don't, I don't know what to make of that. I love Orlando. He's got to be right. one of my favorite dudes, mm-hmm. like romantic dudes. Yeah, in, he's in the romantic place. hero of this play. Yeah. Like. Why is he not worth comment? Yeah, he's why not, you have no words to say about him? He's not two-dimensional. He's, you know, on a trajectory. And yeah. I would think that the homoeroticism of this play might 
warrant some kind of mention. I mean, not maybe mention of the homoeroticism, but mention of the character uh, in the 19th century. But I, what do I know? Not a goddamn thing. Not about art anyway. Yeah, I thought that was funny. So anyway, uh, so he, moving on to Celia, he says, the silent and retired character of Celia is a necessary relief to the provoking loquacity of Rosalind, nor can anything be better conceived or more beautifully described than the mutual affection between the two cousins. Which, adorable. But also, I don't know that I would characterize Celia as a that kind of foil to Rosalind. I mean, they are foils, naturally. Yeah. Like yes. the way you have yeah. Oliver and Orlando are foils for each other, you know, because it's two men of a similar age on the stage, right? Doing mm-hmm. different things. Like they are definitely opposites. I yeah. I balk at um, the description of Celia as silent and retired. Oh yeah, that yeah, I, that's that's I think the the dichotomy I'm having a problem with is because Celia is a weirdly subdued character you know she's around she talks less and she's on stage a lot without speaking Um, right and that's that's a little strange and interesting but as as a it seems it seems a little more binary than Mm -hmm. i think is accurate you know it's not just that rosalind is chatty and celia is less so there are complexities in their relationship and in their characters. I do yeah. love the the beautifully described mutual affection between the two cousins. I think that's adorable. And so true, you know, uh, yeah. wherever we went, we went like Juno's swans, twinned and whatever that line Coupled is. and inseparable. That yeah. one, yeah. Which yeah. is so lovely. It's lovely. Yeah. So all of this to say is that the 19th century had some thoughts about shakespeare and his characters um he's got one last thing about the poetry in the play which i think is a nice segue into where you're going to take us so indeed i'll i'll set it up and knock it out and then you can move us forward um great so he says there's hardly any of shakespeare's plays that contains a greater number of passages that have been quoted in books of extracts or a greater number of phrases that have become in a manner proverbial if we were to give all the striking passages we should give half the play and by that he means if we were to to just do the famous lines it would be half the play you would still get you know most of the story which i think is true yeah this is a hugely quotable play it is it definitely is i mean even taking out just seven ages of man which high all the world's a stage there's mm-hmm. not many lines in english that are more famous to be or not to be is one but i'm not sure how many others there are so right hugely quotable play that's what i have to say william hazlitt gave us some stuff to think about take it away aubrey <laughs> yeah all right so speaking yeah. of the poetry in this play i made a discovery about the use of verse and prose 
in this play when I was preparing a verse workshop a couple weeks ago. The class I was giving this workshop for, this group of students, were taking a, a, a literature class called The Love Story. So they were reading, you know, a bunch of different works from all over the centuries. But, you know, they were reading Emma, they were, which is why they came to the ASC, right? Because they wanted to see As You Like an Aunt Emma. So, so I went looking, I mean, I mean, immediately I went to Rosalind and Orlando and I was like, well, they want the love story. So let me see what I can get out of the verse between the two of them. Um, spoiler alert, there isn't any, there is not any verse, uh, like romantic poetry until the very, very end between Rosalind and Orlando, Isn't that um, weird? which is it is very weird and it, it's weird. Okay, let me explain to our listeners why this is weird. So when Shakespeare's characters fall in love, um, it's it's pretty clearly demarcated on the page because they start talking in verse. If they weren't already in verse, they begin talking in verse immediately. For example, much ado about nothing. Uh, Benedict has that wonderful speech in act three, top, bottom of act two, top of act three, bottom of act two where he is in completely in prose and it's very funny and he's talking about no no woman will tempt my eye ha 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 one woman is fair yet i'm well blah 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 that's all in prose yeah then don pedro and claudio and leonardo play the prank on him they make they convince him that beatrice loves him the very next speech he makes after that is verse he says this can be no trick blah 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 and he goes he's in verse and he's in heightened poetry he's in love this is the world must be peopled yeah 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 and it's in verse uh that's a pretty clear signal you know romeo and juliet they share a sonnet oh. together they get all up in each oh. other's pentameters i mean romeo was yes. speaking in verse anyway but like they speak yeah. verse together and then they like match couplets and they like you know so extemporize cute. a sonnet together it is it's amazing so um cute. yeah uh so like you all over the canon you have characters particularly in comedies um, characters who, when they fall in love, they start talking in verse. Rosalind doesn't do that, and Orlando doesn't do that. Well, I sh okay, one caveat about Orlando. So, Rosalind speaks in prose the whole time, basically. She stays that way, even like she, you know, sees Orlando and she's like, ooh, he's so fine. He's going to go wrestle. Don't die. Right? She and Orlando fall in love. Orlando still talks in prose the minute. Orlando gets to the forest, he starts writing poetry. Like the minute he gets there. Um, it's bad poetry. It's not, um, it's not, you know, your beautiful iambic pentameter uh, Shakespearean sonnets that he writes. He tries, bless him. Um, but he, he, you know, the forest really seems to be the poetical place. Like all of the shepherds talk in verse. Phoebe and Silvius are in verse. I mean, obviously Silvius, because he's like crazy in love with Phoebe. So you have the other lovers. You've got uh, Celia and Oliver at the end. They don't talk to each other too much, really. But like the the switch between verse and prose in this play seems to be for everybody else, the Forest of Arden, even for Orlando. He writes terrible poetry, but he he does it once he's like freed up, you know, in the forest. Rosalind doesn't do it though. Like in all of the scenes, there are three of them between Rosalind and Orlando while they're in the forest together, where she's like teaching Orlando to woo women. And I have a question about that that I'm going to put to you in a minute, Jess. So, like, remind me. But the whole time, the whole time she's in prose. Do you think that has something to do with um, for everyone else 
in the forest garden you know it's the green world it's a reversal and they're they're sort of freed from the strictures of court but Rosalind mm-hmm. goes there in disguise and she's clinging real hard to this artifice I hadn't I hadn't thought of it that way at all but because I, I have no explanation for it you know because in in one one two mm-hmm. she sort of she does both but when she's talking to to Celia um and Orlando she's she's in verse I'm at like one two two forty somewhere in there Okay, like yeah, because at the top of one, two, she and Celia yeah, talk in prose it's to each prose. other. And then... But it's, um, after, it's after the wrestling mass match. And after they have, like, the... When they're doing that exchange with the necklace, and they're, like, falling in love with each other right then, it's all in verse. Right. Huh. Yeah. Right after the wrestling match where Orlando's in verse, he's, I'm, I'm more proud to be with Sir Roland's son. Yeah. Can but I not then, say I thank you? He calls us back. My pride fell with my fortune. Two pages later. Um, what passion hangs these weight up, weights upon my tongue? Yeah, Orlando's in yeah. verse there. But in 1-3, there she's back in prose. Huh. So. Interesting. And see, I had glossed over that. I would skipped that part. Yeah, but then... Because um, there's no speech to cling to with that, so I kind of skipped it for that workshop, yeah. so I didn't look at it. But but when coming back, yeah. so still in 1-3, after Duke Frederick comes in to banish her, she's in prose mm-hmm. again, or in verse again. Um, mm. So I'm not entirely sure what to make of that. Yeah. I do beseech your grace. Let me know of the knowledge of my fault. Yeah, so like, yeah. she speaks she speaks courtly verse, right? Yeah, with I think Frederick, it, it has right? something to do with with being a presentational version of herself, I think is maybe when she huh. speaks in verse. That's the formality. Yeah. Huh. And I don't think, I don't think that quick exchange after the wrestling match where they're both in verse is enough to upend everything you've said about how they don't do that. Cause that's, that's like 12 lines or right. 20 lines. I think, not, I think it much. compounds the mystery. Though. Yeah. I think it's weird. Yeah. I know we've talked about this before about like, you know, you can't necessarily hear verse and prose. You can't hear the difference most of the time, unless it's rhyming. You can't really hear the difference when it's being performed. You have to, this is more of like, as a scholar, as a teacher, as an actor, when you're looking at the words on the page and looking for the most like fundamental clues, that is, as an actor, that is where I always begin, is I always start with what's my verse doing or my prose in this case what's my verse doing what's the what's their rhetoric what are the rhetorical patterns and then sort of build out from there like figuring out what's going on with my character because i know i know it's cliche but like verse really when you have verse verse gives you a rhythm and it gives you a a a heartbeat for your character you know and i i I can hear matt davis like snickering when i say that but like but it's kind of true like no matter what that rhythm is like that's kind of where you where i start and then i look for rhetorical patterns after that so so the thing that always jumps out to me when i have a character like this is yeah like when they switch between verse and prose why are they doing it what has caused the change and and yeah i think you're right it's um the wrestling match is in front of the duke it's courtly the duke has sent both of them over to orlando to entreat him not to fight right so they're kind of doing the bidding of duke frederick and it's formal in that way right and things like oh young sir um 
you know, and the way they address each other indicates sort of that formality. So it's hard to say it's you, you could argue, right, you could argue that they speak in verse to each other because they're like falling in love at first sight, which is a choice. You can also say, like you said, it's the verse is part of the courtly artifice, like the formal version of Rosalind. And then the the informal is is her prosy self. You know, and another sort of generally accepted trend is that, you know, verse is like the love language, the heart language, prose is the more logical. I don't always agree with that, but it's a it's a helpful place to start sometimes. So I wonder, you know, if you add that theory, if you add that theory in, what does that say about Rosalind when she's in the forest teaching Orlando how to talk to girls? And I, I don't have really answers for that, but like if you if you agree that prose is the more logical type of speech, right? A little more I I don't want to say rational, but like reasoned. It's the it's the wit, it's the logos. Then why is she logicking her way through romance? You know? Yeah. I mean, I don't know that she has any other frame of reference to do it, right? Yeah. Because she has she has no romantic models, right? Her mother right. is wherever her mother is dead probably right. celia's mother is wherever celia's mother is dead probably right. um but neither is mentioned in the play there seem to be no other women at court it's right it's kind of a bro zone um and there's since since uh the good duke has been overthrown mm-hmm. um and even you know, when with his anti-court in Arden, there are no women. Like, right? It it doesn't seem as though she has any way to to know what what a healthy male female relationship looks like, or even an unhealthy one. Like, there's just there's no model for it. Right. Which I think so. is a great segue to the question I just want to put out there that we can yeah yeah talk about. Which is, why is Rosalind hating so much on other women? Like, while she's teaching Orlando, you know, how to woo, I've always been struck, every time I see this play, every time I read this play, I'm always struck with, she asks Orlando, how long would you have her after you possessed her or something like that? Yeah, it's 4-1. It's like maybe around Um, line 200, somewhere in there. Yeah, Yeah, because it's really cute. He comes up to her and, and she's like, well, you know. This is the same scene where she's like, come woo me, woo me, for I'm in a holiday humor mm-hmm. and like enough to consent. And he says, love me, Rosalind. And it's the marry us. And, you know, we're going to do our pretend wedding. And then she says, now tell me how long you would have her after you have possessed her. And Orlando says, forever and a day, which is the right answer. Good boy. Um, and <laughs> Rosalind says... Say a day without the ever. No, no, Orlando. Men are April when they woo, December when they wed. Maids are May when they are maids, but the sky changes when they are wives. And then she goes on and on and on about how, like, everyone changes and, you know, stop being so naive, you dumb romantic boy. First of all, why you got to crush his dreams like that? Secondly, like, yeah, where did this opinion on men and women come from? Like, who hurt you, Rosalind? Who hurt you? And I guess the answer is Duke Frederick, but like, yeah, to a certain extent. But like, wh- where did all this cynicism about romance come from? From this w- girl who 
basically has lived a sheltered life at court. Where did yeah. it come from? Uh, I don't know. Because <laughs> there are, as I've just pointed out, there are no other women in this play. I don't know. It's just, it's a mystery to me. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure there's like a right way to play it so that I will get it. <laughs> I'm not sure there's any way to deliver a line like that. That doesn't come off, as Celia points out, as really harsh upon our own sex. Um, and kind of, you know, you can see why Celia gets mad at her. Um, you have simply misused our sex and your love prate. What's the deal, Rosalind? What is the fucking deal? It's why, it's why we keep coming back to these plays, because they got, yeah. they got mysteries. Yeah, and I guess we just need to keep doing them over and over again and to get it right at some point. Okay. Yes. <clears throat> Let's um, do it. Oh yeah, new segment. Yeah. So so we're we're calling this this new thing that we're going to do um how to grad school. Uh because we're getting the impression that a lot of our listeners are students. Um and I of course am a student. Um and Aubrey of course was just a student very recently. Um, and, you know, is still a student in many ways. Uh, and there's so much to consider um, when it comes to choosing grad school and or choosing academia as a life path. Um, and it's a conversation that I seem to be having a lot lately in my own life. So Aubrey and I decided that we might have occasional conversations here on the podcast about grad school and academia and, you know, this sort of academic world that we seem to be inhabiting. So if you have a question about grad school or academia that you'd like us to tackle, get in touch. Uh, We're at Hurley Burley Shake on Twitter, or you can email us at holla at hurleyburleyshakespeareshow.com. But this week, we just wanted to talk about how we decided to go to grad school. So Aubrey, you want to quick and dirty your story, how, how you found yourself in grad school? Which program? <laughs> I mean, um, either. Both. Okay. Yeah. So for those of you who have not listened to our episode 000 about us, I ha- I got my first master's degree. I got a master's in teaching from Chapman University. And I had taken a year, like I graduated college in 2005 um, from Santa Cruz. And I spent a year or almost a year um, in San Francisco, just like taking a break from school, working at a bakery. I was a barista at this bakery. And I started to think about, you know, next steps in a career. And at the time I was super into clowning. Um, I mean, I'm always into clowning, but like I had applied for this like miming and physical theater uh, program um, in London and I got in and, and then when it came time to apply for, you know, financial aid, FAFSA, Turns out this particular school in London was not covered by federal student aid like some other international schools are. So I had to withdraw. And after that, I just, I don't know, I just like panicked about money. And I was like, the fuck am I going to do with my life? Oh, well, um, I, you know, teaching is a solid thing. It was, it's kind of always a moneymaker. You can do anything. You can go anywhere with teaching. Basically, people always need teachers. Um, which was like, you know, my mom had been pushing me to do that since I graduated. She tried to get me to go into education when I was at Santa Cruz. And I was like, no, mom, I'm going to do theater. 
only theater. Um, <laughs> and I did because I'm so scared. dramatic, Aubrey. I know. I was so, and I was like, you just can't squash my art. I, I don't want to teach. So I, I entered that first program sort of out of fear. I didn't shop around a lot. Um, I had heard that Chapman was the best and Chapman and they kind of are, um, they're one of the highest rated teaching programs in definitely in California and I'm pretty sure nationally. And, you know, I called the admissions person and they were like, oh, theater person. Oh my God, of course we need you. Yeah, duh. Um, we need theater people to teach because teaching is performing all the time. And they had a bunch of satellite campuses so I could kind of decide where to live while I went to school and they they were had flexible schedules so that I could hold down a full-time job. Like that kind of stuff factored into choosing, but I didn't other than that I didn't shop around for programs. Um so I did that one. Uh the second time around after I was burnt out on teaching, I <laughs> now that I'm like having to talk it out, I'm realizing sort of how capricious my school choices have been. Wait till you hear my story. <laughs> uh, I I I literally just Googled MFA Shakespeare. And, you know, the reason I looked into MFA was because an MFA was something I was exploring as an undergraduate, like looking at MFA mm -hmm. programs. I personally, when I was ready to graduate college, I didn't feel ready to jump immediately into an MFA program. So I didn't do any of those applications while I was still an undergrad. Um, but that was part of the reason I took a year off and I was looking at, at um, LISPA, the London International School of Performing Arts, because they had a certification program, but it was not like an advanced degree. So I was like, oh, I could do some of that training, get myself better qualified for a real MFA training program. That was my thought because I did not feel ready. But, you know, by the time I had been teaching for, I had worked in the school systems for seven years as a teacher for six years, by that time... I I was like, you know what, if I'm going to do it, like I need, I have to get this MFA. I want an MFA. And and what makes me happy? Shakespeare makes me happy. So I Googled MFA Shakespeare. I found the Shakespeare and Performance Program at Mary Baldwin College in a town I had never heard of in Virginia. And again, like called the admissions officer and and she talked me into it, basically. Um, she was like, come out and visit. We are going to take care of you. We'll have an itinerary. Like they were so welcoming that has always played a huge factor actually is, is whether or not the campus is welcoming, um, mm -hmm. for me that even as an undergraduate, um, the, like the minute I set foot at UC Santa Cruz, I was like, I'm done. I love these people. I'm done. So yeah, uh, it, mostly it was the only one that offered exactly what I wanted. Sure. So I went there. Word. I like it. Uh, you yeah. know, it's, it's I didn't a little even more think twice about it. <laughs> well, it's a little more purposeful than, than how I got into grad school. Um, I, I fell into it completely by accident. Back in 2012, I was married um, and my husband was maybe going to lose his job. He did not actually end up losing that job, but it was real, like we were looking for, for other places to go. And I was like, well, shit, I mean, I have a bachelor's degree in theater and I work in a bookstore. Like I am trained for nothing. So if we move, what am I going to do? I guess maybe I'll go to grad school. So I started looking at like, um, I was looking at MA programs in history and MFA programs in theater because um, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And I kind of still don't. <laughs> but I had a friend who lives in Harrisonburg, which is just down the road from Stanton. And she said, 
are you applying to Mary Baldwin? And I said, what's a Mary Baldwin? And the rest <laughs> is kind of history. Um, because What's a Mary Baldwin? Yeah, like that, that, you know, that program, um, that program was created with me in mind, basically. I mean, the, the first part of it, the Emlet, the Master of Letters program is for sure, mm-hmm. that's me. That is the Jess Hamlet program. Um, the MFA, less so, uh, it was not, I'm not sorry about it, but it was not a great experience for me. Mostly, I just need to say, because my marriage was falling apart and not because of any failings of the program itself. Um, It was not not a great time to be me and not a great time to be me trying to be a real person in academia. So I got into grad school just sort of by accident. You know, it, Mm -hmm. it just it was the only place I applied. Um, and I applied a full year in advance. I applied in 2012 and Julie called and was like, Hey, do you want to come next month and be in school? And I was like, no, I need a year. Thanks. And thank God, because I ended up with you guys instead of, uh, whoever was in front of us, which not to say that like they're lovely people also, but the best fit for me, I think was with my cohort. And then for the PhD, again, it was kind of an accident. Um, I knew that I wanted to do a PhD. Um, I didn't get into the schools that I really wanted to, which I'm still salty about. It's fine, but yeah, I'm course. salty about it. Of course. Um, and then uh, Alabama was kind of a, a last minute Hail Mary I had like I barely looked at the program and they were undergoing changes anyway because they were getting a new program director. So the person who recruited me is not the person. She's not there. She's retired. She lives in mm-hmm. I don't know, California or something. Yeah, I mean, it was it was such an accident. I think I applied. They accepted me within a couple of days. <clears throat> they flew me out the following week. I was there, I think, like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And then they needed an answer by Friday. It was such a whirlwind and it was so fast. I remember that. I remember when you were going through that, it was that quick. It was so fast and it was so stressful um, because I had sort of made my peace with, all right, I'm taking a gap year. I'm going to cobble together employment in Stanton. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to reapply for the next cycle. It's going to be what it's going to be. I had re-upped my lease already. And then all of a sudden I was moving to Tuscaloosa and yeah. It is not a place I enjoy. I don't love Alabama yeah. at all. <laughs> but um, all of that to say, the the program here is great. So, you know, I, I fell into grad school in the first place and Alabama in the second place, completely by accident. Neither one was planned. Um, but it's, it's a choice that I make every day now. You know, I love learning. I love love my research and I adore my students. I'm having a great time. Grad school's crazy. This last semester of coursework is crazy and it's stressful and it's exhausting, but it's so great. And, you know, it's life I chose. I chose it. Yeah. It's, it is mine only and I'm, I'm into it. So yesterday um, I tweeted out, you know, what was the, the biggest thing that you considered when choosing grad school? Um, and I didn't think I'd get a whole lot of response, but boy, was I wrong. 
Mm -hmm. uh, it, I, there's a lot of notifications and they're still mm -hmm. coming in. But so things that, you know, if you're thinking about grad school, this is what people seem to say is that, you know, you want to think about if it's going to help your career path or if you're changing careers, yep. you know, that's what go I to grad did. school. Yep. That's, those are reasons. Funding opportunities. How much is it going to cost you versus scholarship versus, um, full package funding, like the kind that comes with most PhD programs in this country anyway. Uh, location, location, location. This was oh my the one God, that came yes. up over and over and over and over and over. Uh, yeah. If I could do it again, would I choose Alabama? Probably not because I hate it here so much. But I, I again, love my program. Hate that it's in Alabama. Love yeah. my program. <laughs> and then at the PhD level, this was the one that came up over and over and over again, is who are you going to work with? Who's the faculty? Who's going to supervise you? And that is is the really important one. None of those things I considered when I chose Alabama because it was so fast. It was It was basically, well, do I wait or do I take this really good offer and go now? And it was, well, go now. So that's yeah. what I did. <laughs> um, and, you know, if I could do it over again, I'd probably take that extra year and reapply. But all of this to say, I'm happy with my program. I'm happy with my choices. And it's giving me so much opportunity that I frankly might not have at um, other schools that are maybe more well-regarded than the University of Alabama. Had I gone to, let's say, had I gone to Stanford, which is a place I know I did apply. You know, it's, it's, first of all, it's a top tier school. It's hugely competitive. And then once you get there, you're still competing for yeah. all of the opportunities that they offer. But at a place like Alabama, we, we offer all of the same opportunities that Stanford is going to offer. We're part of all of the library consortiums. We've got the networks, we've got the placement for internships and fellowships and all of the ships. But because there are, first of all, so few of us here, it's less competitive. Right. And second of all, because we're not, so let me, let me just put this in perspective. Um, so the, the Folger Shakespeare library um, runs learning workshops, institutes, fellowships, research ships. They do like little classes throughout the year. And those are really competitive to get into. First of all, your school has to be part of the Folger Library Consortium, which Alabama is. And then you have to compete with everybody else who applies. But so because Alabama is not a top tier school, they're always looking to include us. So even if, say, four people from Alabama apply and 20 people from Harvard apply, they're maybe going to take one person from Harvard, but they'll take all four from Alabama. So there was a, a, a research thing, a research skills intensive, that's what it's called, uh, last May. And I went to this the May before, but last May, five of my cohort applied and four got in. And that's bananas. So there are, yeah, you know, there are benefits to, to not going to Harvard or Stanford. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, the small school experience, right? You have to consider, yeah. you know, and everybody says that, you know, when you're looking at colleges as an undergraduate too, but like for a mm -hmm. graduate program in particular, like mm -hmm. what kind of opportunities are you going to get in a small school versus a really big school and a tier one highly competitive school, right? Yeah. Sometimes there are benefits to being a big fish in a small pond. If you're yeah. really trying to like 
take advantage of all the opportunities that are thrown your way. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe you want a small school experience so that you can have a better, you know, statistically better <laughs> chances yeah. of getting those opportunities. I mean, Alabama is enormous. It's like 40,000 students or something. Right, but your grad it's, program is tiny. Yeah, my, yeah. Um, so my grad program is housed within the English department that is also yeah. large. I think there's like maybe 300 grad students overall, but my program is 12. There are right. 12 of us. It's itty bitty. Yeah. We, we little. So it's Yeah. Cool. And the Mary um, Baldwin program total of for all three years is like 50, like, right? Yeah, 56. Like, because it tapers off. The incoming class yeah. is usually a, almost 50% of the student, of the grad student population. It's like 20 ish yeah. usually. And then it tapers off, you know, to about 10 to 15 by the time yeah. you're uh, a third year in the MFA company. You know, the thing that strikes me too is that. Back in 0506, when I was like, I think I want an MFA. I wanted the MFA because my whole life I had been reading like actor bios and reading their their training. And I thought, because at the time I still thought I was like, I want to be a clown, I want to be a professional theater maker, I want to be an actor. And I th- and I thought that you know an MFA was the way to get me there. And that's true, it is. I still I returned to the idea of getting an MFA because. After my years in education, I was still like, well, actually, you know, theater is what makes me happy. I want to get back on that trajectory. But I also want, the, you know, part of the reason I ultimately decided to go into the Shakespeare and Performance Program is because of their emphasis on interdisciplinary training. Like a whole quarter of the training is pedagogy um, and, and teaching Shakespeare and teaching theater. And I thought at that time, it was it was then a great way to combine my real world work experience, which I then had, and my passion for theater. So like, even if, you know, your reason for pursuing the degree changes over time, I think, you know, still go for it. Sometimes like grad students and like PhD students are considered, you know, wonks, nerds, why are you even doing this? The pursuit of learning. You know what I mean? Like there's a whole faction of society yeah. that's like, why even bother? Yeah. And it seems, you know, unbelievable to some people that some of us actually just really like learning and like, like pursuing it because it enriches us, not necessarily because it's going to make us tons of money later, which, you know, the career path, I definitely admit was part of my decision. Although I never really expected like much money to come out of it. I just thought I would get a, a job that was more in line to align to what I considered made me happy yeah <laughs> you know <laughs> trying to pursue my happiness here I know um, there's a, there's a lot to consider I think I think that was a conversation worth having if you listeners out there want us to talk about you know conferences or the job market or what to mm-hmm. look for in an MFA theater program or what to look for in an English PhD program or an MA program just give us a shout we we will take this wherever you want us to. Uh, and in the absence of you telling us where you want us to take it, I'll take it wherever I want to take it. So yeah, um, yeah. get in touch. It's, it's important to me that we tackle what's sort of called the hidden curriculum of grad school. And those, those things that you, you just don't learn until you're in it and you're sort of figuring it out for yourself and that sort of disproportionately affects first generation students and students from marginalized populations and it's it's something that I'm trying to combat 
in my yeah. own program, you know, the, the first year master's students come in, they, they just have no idea about anything. And I'm like, well, you know, you're never going to learn it unless you learn it. But like, wouldn't yeah. it be great if there was someone here to help you learn it? And rather wouldn't than that be be nice? like, figure it yeah. out. Right. Like, yeah, it's, it's so much easier to reach a hand down and help someone up than to not, I suppose. Yeah, totally. So. Totally. Anyway, uh, yeah. how to grad school, get in touch, let us know. And uh, yeah. maybe, maybe we'll gossip a little bit. Yeah, let's gossip. So in 201 episodes, we try to keep it centralized around the play of choice. So that's as you like it. So here are some upcoming, just in rapid fire, upcoming productions of As You Like It in, looks like on our list, in the United States, in Canada, our friends to the north, and also uh, one in the UK. So first up is... Bard on the Beach Shakespeare Festival in Vancouver, British Columbia. They're doing As You Like It through September 28th. So only like a week or two left to see that one. Mm -hmm. um, if you are in Wisconsin, especially Spring Green, Wisconsin, you can see the American Players Theater doing it until October 7th. The Pigeon Creek Shakespeare Company in Grand Haven, Michigan runs As You Like It from October 18 to November 18 of this year. So if you want to go say hi to Aubrey, you can go to the ASC in Stanton, Virginia, uh, which yep. that, that production of As You Like It, which is charming. Um, runs until December the 2nd of this year. If you're up in uh, New England, Boston University Shakespeare Society in Boston, Mass, is running as you like it this whole fall. Um, if you are down a little closer to my neck of the woods in Memphis, Tennessee, the Tennessee Shakespeare Company is doing it uh, November 29th through December 16th. Out in Arizona, out in the Southwest, Southwest Shakespeare Company in Mesa, Arizona, February 15 to March 7 of 2019. You can see it at the Guthrie in Minneapolis, uh, February Ooh. 9th through March 17th, if you're in the Midwest. Fauquier. Fauquier? Farquad. Fauquier. Fauquier. I don't know. Fauquier. F-A-U-Q-U-I-E-R. <laughs> Community Theater in Warrington, Virginia, is doing As You Like It from March 8th through 24th in 2019. Yeah. Um, if you're in Pennsylvania, you can see it at the Harrisburg Shakespeare Company, which is part of the Gamut Theater Group, I assume. Um, or maybe that's in partnership with the Gamut Theater Group. It's just a comma. I don't know. Um, they're doing it in April of 2019 for just one weekend only, April 12th to 14th. Ooh. Oh, man. Okay. Alabama Shakespeare Festival in Montgomery, Alabama runs As You Like It from April 11th through 24th, 2019. Yeah, I'd say come say hi to me, but I'm not near Montgomery, so nah, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, friends of us, Brave Spirits in Alexandria, Virginia, April 4 to 28, 2019. Shout out oh, to awesome. them. Awesome. Yeah. And the Seattle Shakespeare Company in Seattle, Washington, April 23rd, that's Shakespeare's birthday, through May 19th, 2019. And finally, if you're in the, the good old UK, you can see it at the RSC in the spring and summer of next year. Um, directed yeah. by Kimberly Sykes. It's at the Royal Shakespeare Theatre in Stratford upon the Avon uh, from February until August. And you can start buying your tickets October 22nd. So get on that. So that is our that is our Shakes Bubble gossip. All right. So let's let's move on to our dick bracket. Talk about some dicks. Um, so, OK, 
So we we are currently in the middle of adjusting the voting schedule to match up when the episodes air. So we don't yet have a winner for last week's matchup, which was Portia versus Proteus. Mm-hmm. You can stay tuned to to find that out next week. Um, mm-hmm. And also Dionysa versus Danville, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. But pretty soon, next week, we'll be sort of back on track and we'll we'll be able to give some winners and it's going to be great. Uh, so this week we have deadbeat dads and bitchy brothers, which I'm really mm. proud of that alliteration. <laughs> You're, you should Thank be. You. It's a good one. Thank deadbeat you. dads and bitchy brothers. Yeah. It's fun to say. Um, <laughs> yeah. So we've got Lear versus Prospero. And the brothers Malfi versus the Spanish tragedy boys. Yeah. And the Spanish tragedy boys I are not rightly remember brothers, but right. They're just, they- they kind of are maybe going to be brothers in law, except everybody dies. Right. So, like, I felt like it was the same. They're, um, yeah, they're dudes in cahoots. Yeah, it's, it's Lorenzo uh, and Balthazar from the Spanish yes. tragedy, and and those Malfi dudes. and Malfi from the brothers Malfi, not from the brothers Malfi, from the Malfi of Duchess, the Duchess of Malfi, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> um. So anyway. Lear. Let's let's refresh our listeners on Lear. Um, he is a father who is dividing his kingdom in three among his three daughters, and he forces them to tell him how much they love him in order to reward them with sections of the uh, kingdom. And when that doesn't go as well as he imagined when it comes to his youngest daughter, who refuses to falsely flatter him but just says you know i love you as much as i am supposed to i am you know your dutiful obedient daughter he's like how dare you uh and disinherits her and by disinheriting her also um removes some of her prospects for marriage uh and then he goes crazy and continues to be a dick so Mm -hmm. that's good old lear what about prosper yeah so prospero is uh, a man on a vengeance plan. Um, <laughs> he he starts he starts out the play by causing a big old shipwreck, um, which basically traumatizes his daughter. She watches the whole shipwreck and she's like sad for the people who died or who she thinks died. He causes the shipwreck. He basically manipulates everybody on the island once they have washed ashore. He manipulates everybody on the island to arrive at the place of his choosing at the time of his choosing he's a manipulative guy overall he um even manipulates his own daughter into you know believing his lies but also believing you know in falling in love with ferdinand on top of that he has two named slaves that are at his beck and call on the island and untold others right he's got basically infinite power vast cosmic power in his itty bitty living space on the island right which i assume i extrapolate that if he's got ariel and caliban he must have other like spirits of the island at his control he you know we are told he overthrew sycorax the witch and like killed mm-hmm. her who's caliban's mom um to gain possession and power on the island so like right. he's I mean, gonna dirty that- past that you know. mask with Juno and Ceres and right. the other one. So, right, yeah. yeah. So he has enslaved the inhabitants of the island. He's, you know, Mister Colonialism. He eventually gives it up, but it takes him a while. 
and yeah, almost he almost like kills his brother to do it um yeah and like yeah it's it's not it's not great no, i wouldn't say he's great. like the worst guy ever but it's not great prospero it's, it's not great. it's a not it's dickish stuff to do man so then we have uh the brothers malfi who um in short they have a widowed sister the duchess of malfi um, and they try to keep her from remarrying because they want to control her lands and fortunes. When she marries in secret, they, and they eventually find this out, they murder her and also murder her husband. And also, pretty sure they murder her children. They definitely fake the murder of her children and her husband um, with like wax bodies. It's been a minute since I've read the play. Forget if they actually do the murders. Either way, they murder their sister. <laughs> Murdering yeah. your sister ain't great. So yes. Ferdinand and Cardinal. Yes. Those yeah. are the brothers. I just I just needed a name. We kept saying right, Brothers right. Malfi, and I was like, yeah. what the fuck are their names? Ferdinand and the Cardinal. They So one they, of them still doesn't have a name. He's just a cardinal. Yes. Yeah. Great. They murder their sister. Right. Uh the Spanish tragedy dudes. What did I say their names were? Lorenzo, Lorenzo and Balthazar. And Balthazar. Um, they also murder, they murder, uh, Horatio uh-huh. and they, kidnap. They, imp- they kidnap and imprison Bell Imperia. Yep. They, um, I'm sorry. My memory is like a sieve, my dude. No, it's, I, um, it's, you've got, that's pretty they, much it. Yeah. They uh, cause all kinds of problems. This is, this is the one where they kill a bunch of servants. Yeah. Hadrino oh yeah. And... The servant killing. Like, don't, why are you going to treat the help like that? That's fucked up. Murder. So there's got we've got mm-hmm. some murder and some murder. This one I think is going to be murder a toss-up. and some yeah. I mean they both you know um, murder to get their way. They try yep. to manipulate a particular woman right um, yep. into doing what they want, and when she doesn't, they enact violence on her. The um, Bell Imperia doesn't die at the end of the Spanish tragedy, right? Oh, so, yes, she does. Oh, wait, yes, she does. I mean, but not but at their It's hands. self-inflicted. No, she, right. she it, commits she... suicide in the mask. Whereas the brothers, they... they kill their own sister. Yeah, not great. When when she doesn't do what they want. And like her family just sucks. Yeah. And her also new in-laws. It's fucked up. Yep. Um, so on that note, thank you so much for listening, everyone. We hope you leave this podcast more informed than when you started. And with yeah. our 201s, you know, we hope we hope that we leave you with more questions than answers, because that's really what these are for. Tune in next week for another non-Shakespeare play. <gasps> How did we get so lucky? John Marston's The Malcontent, which is just, it's a whale of a play. So, yeah, so I want you to see. Can you tune in? Can you- I want you to see that I am yes, taking your advice about reading reading an act tonight, and I have it marked Good. out this whole week. Good. I'm going to read an act tonight. Good. So there you go. Alrighty, wham it out. Yeah, wham it out, bitches. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please tell all your friends, rate us, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, or Google Play. Get in touch with us. Tell us what you're working on and thinking about. You can email us at holla, which is H-O-L-L-A, at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can also find us at hurlyburlyshakes on Instagram or hurlyburlyshake, no S, on Twitter. 
Put the pedal to the metal, there's dust in my eyes Burning up my rubber, going nine to five I don't get to where I'm going, I think I might die I'm going to Las Vegas to get me a wife Burley Shakespeare Show was produced entirely by Aubrey Whitlock and Jess Hamlet with no help from anyone because we're poor. To read more about us or for other podcast adjacent materials, visit our website at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. Okay, we did have help from one guy, Jonathan Shu, who composed the music you're enjoying right now. For more information on him, go to jonathanshu.com or check out his albums on iTunes. And hey, if we name-checked you or someone you know during today's podcast, it's because you inspire us. So keep doing what you do best. Have a kid, have a family, gonna marry me the first woman I see. Verse and prose? Pros and verse. Prosy versy pros. Sure. Versy prose. I don't know, I'm just making shit up. Yeah, we're, we're talking about the poetry.